this is a, a deeply meaningful Sunday to Waterstone. Always because Jesus is risen. This morning, you in a few moments are going to meet uh, a man who, um, whether you realize it or not, every time you've walked in this room, you've been fingerprinted by him. His ministry, his uh, impact on Nick, his impact on Waterstone. Uh, and in a moment, I'm going to introduce this man, and he's going to be our guest preacher this morning, though what he shares will seem like an old voice. And so um, Nick was going to do it, but frankly, he had some other business come up this morning. Yeah, That is uh, Nick and Barb's first grandchild. Out in Wisconsin, Danielle and Philippe, uh, she was born, her name is Emily, Emmeline Elizabeth. Emmeline Elizabeth, she was born yesterday. So yeah, we said, okay, Nick, you could miss, only today you could miss. So uh, Nick and Barbara rejoicing out there. But Nick did send some comments for me to use to introduce our speaker this morning who will bring God's word to us. Here's what Nick wrote. It was Frank's vision and open-handedness that allowed Centennial, we are a church formerly known as Centennial, to launch. Frank encouraged people to go, and with them, about 100 people, and they're, they're giving, and these were key leaders at Bear Valley Church. They, 30 years ago, Frank sent them down with Nick, the youth pastor, to start what is now Waterstone. Frank is responsible for the seeds that formed Waterstone's DNA, both in terms of kingdom orientation and our missional approach. Many of the ministries that we are familiar with in Denver come out of Frank's vision when he pastored Bear Valley Church, Mile High Ministries, Open Door Ministries, Inner City Health Center, Joshua Station, Providence House, Marion Street Homes, all of these started out of Bear Valley in the 70s and 80s and continue strong today. The ripple effect of Frank's book, The Church Unleashed, has been huge and transformative across churches in the West. Frank lived out the notion that the church was to be called a force, was called to be a force in the culture, not a fortress from the culture. Personally, Frank was formative, Nick says, in my thinking about the church and the Christian life, Frank made me want to be committed to the local church and see it as God's primary theater of action, which would change the world. Would you join me in welcoming to the pulpit this morning, Frank Tillapa. I wish you could have been there 30, 31 years ago on that first Sunday at Centennial, a pastor that I had never met called me and he said, Frank, he said, I'm pastoring a very small church and uh, actually about 10 people and we're on, a, we're on a kind of a side street located on Lowell Boulevard and he said, I graduate from seminary in a, a couple of months and I'm leaving town. Would you like to take this church? <laughs> and I I said, well, why not? Let's, let's check it out. And so I went down and began to preach. I was, I was your, your preacher in this church before Nick showed up. And uh, that first Sunday, we had about 10 people. And you just can't imagine what it's like for me to come back and see this some 30 years later. Abs I mean, God's been up to something. This is, this, is, this is just a wonderful story. So we say in Spanish, 
We say in Spanish, bien hecho, well done, Waterstone, and Covenant together because another church merged with you. Uh, I am really proud of you and excited about not only the last 30 years, but I'm even more excited about the next 30 years here at Waterstone. A guy by the name of Studs Terkel, who, by the way, that's a name I've always loved. I mean, it just doesn't get better than Studs Terkel, okay? Uh, a guy by the name of Studs Terkel wrote a book called Working, and he had a brilliant idea. He took a microphone and he interviewed a wide variety, people in a wide variety of jobs, janitors and doctors and waitresses and teachers, and he put their words in the book and just to kind of share how people feel about the work they do. And his conclusion was, jobs are not big enough for the human spirit. Most people long for a calling because their spirits are not, their, their spirits are not satisfied with just jobs. And I thought to myself, how fortunate we are as Christians because we have a calling. As a matter of fact, we have two callings. We have something that I would call the, the general calling. And the general calling for you is the same as it is for me. And Jesus even put it into a compact passage when he says in Matthew, he says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. That's our calling. Bloom where you're planted. Be a Christian in whatever you're doing. Same for you, same for me. But the second calling is trickier. The second calling is individualized. As a matter of fact, we're told in Ephesians and Philippians, we're told that our special calling is something that God has prepared for us in advance to do. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't it amazing what the billions of people who have lived on the planet Earth, you can take one strand of hair and tell an individual apart from everybody else? I mean, that's just, that's incredible. What that tells us is that you're the only version of you that history's ever going to see. And so there are good works that God has prepared for you. There are good works that fit you. As a matter of fact, we read in Philippians, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that indicates to me, that's pretty, it's pretty special. Fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, and I love this, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here's the translation. God's going to give you the want to to do what he wants you to do. God's working in you to will and to act. That was the theme of Bear Valley Church during the 70s and 80s. And out of that launched a host of ministries to penetrate the city of Denver. You see, we were never convinced at Bear Valley that we should build a church on an attraction model. 
we were convinced that the church should be all about penetration. But you don't penetrate widely with pastoral staffs because there are so few of us. If you're going to penetrate widely, you, the, the rank and file have to do the penetrating because there's so many of you. You know the old story, we get paid for being good and you're good for nothing. So all the good for nothing people uh, are the ones who have to penetrate. And sometimes, sometimes it's connected to your job. Bob and Jan Williams came to our church, a young doctor in his first medical practice. He hooked up with three other Christian doctors up in Applewood. And he hooked up with them so that he could go to the mission field every four years and do for a month and, and do medical missions down there. But as he sat in the body at Bear Valley and we talked about penetrating, and we, he realized what a healthcare crisis we have in this country, he began to pray and think, God, going every four years is not enough. I need to do more than that. And so he he uh, went down to, uh, he talked to the doctors and said, look, if I find another doctor, he cut, his, he cut his salary in half, by the way. He cut his practice in half. He said, if I find a doctor to take half my practice, would you continue to work with me if I go into Five Points and launch a medical clinic? Last year, that medical clinic served 6,500 people. 90% of the people it served are working poor. They have a staff now of about 30 people, doctors and dentists and healthcare workers. It's an incredible story. It was about 1984 or so when, when, the, when the clinic opened, and I remember the, the Christmas edition of, uh, of uh, the, the Denver Post had a kind of a local section in it, and there, there, because the clinic was located at 32nd and Downing Street, and the, and the story, the, the headline was The Miracle of 32nd Street. And it talked about these Christians who were opening a clinic in the heart of the city. Folks, that's the kingdom. That's what Jesus preached about relentlessly. Tony and Gina, who attend church now, the Sterniolos, Tony's a lawyer, handles a lot of divorces. And so he began to pray, what is it, God, that you might ask me to do beyond just uh, loving the Lord my God with all your heart, beyond my general calling? What's my special calling? And God laid something called marriage watchers. And here was the idea. Look, I'm a, I'm a divorce lawyer, so you can take your choice. You can either come and meet with us and we'll figure out how to help you strengthen your marriage, or you can wait until it's too late. And by the way, this will be free. We're not going to charge you. Or you can pay me $200 an hour and come over here and talk about how to get rid of your marriage. They could tell you stories all day long that came out of their ministry called marriage watchers. It made sense for Tony because he knew the same problems that people keep running into because he heard it in his office. So he took that and turned it into a calling. I went up and worked with a church up in Westminster and, and uh, worked with them about getting their ideas about thinking outside of the walls and into the city. And there was a young guy up there who owned a, a repair shop in Boulder and he kept seeing single moms bringing in their cars that blew their engines because they didn't know to change the oil. They didn't know to, that the oil was running low. And he kept thinking, you know, I need to make some place where, like Tony, I need to get people ahead of the problem. Uh, and so what they did is they set up oil changing in the, in the parking lot at Westminster Nazarene. And during the week, they would change oil for single moms. And that 
was, you know, that got them out of the walls of the church into the community. They became known in the community. The word got out. If you're a single mom, you need an oil change, here's some people who will take care of that for you. Nancy and Bill, uh, I, I, I should back up a minute. I challenged the church one Sunday because, and I never punished people. I never said, we ought to do this. Never ought to. The question was always, does anybody want to? Because what I learned was, when you get want to, when you get passion, you get everything. You get their money, you get their time, you get their et cetera. But if you get ought to, it's going to be like pulling teeth. So I, my, my Google, by the way, you know, we didn't have Google back then. And so my Google was USA Today. And I would read these little blurbs about statistics across the country. And I read about the fact that, that the feds had allotted a bunch of money to the states because there was a new problem arising in the 80s, and that was female teenage delinquents because of the drug epidemic of the 70s. I have friends that tell me, if you remember the 70s, you weren't there, okay? So uh, this drug epidemic impacted young teenagers, and... And the states couldn't handle it, and so the feds put all kinds of money out there. And I threw that out there, and I didn't know this, but there were two people who had masters of social work, which we needed to open the center. And so we found the place, and, and we got the license, and we opened the center, and we got $1,250 a month from the state of Colorado, and we were licensed for up to eight delinquent girls. We ran that for four or five uh, years until all the funding dried up. And we were the only church that I know of in Denver who had their antennas up listening to what's going on in the culture. Because often the calling that you have for your special calling is a small window of opportunity. And about four years into that, the head of that whole group from the state called me and she said, Frank, would you like to open another home? The state wants to open a home for teenage prostitutes, but they're going to be a much tougher group. And I said, well, let me find out. We'll see if God's got anybody ready. And she said, by law, Frank, I have to ask you first. And I said, you do? She said, yeah, because you're the, number one, you're the one, number one delinquent home in the system. I said, we are? How did that happen? And she said, you're the number one home because you have the fewest runaways. It wasn't a lockup. You have the f- because the very house we were in the state ran it before, and they had, they had masters in social work, but they couldn't stay out of bed with the girls. They, you know, smoking dope with the girls, partying with the girls. And then she asked me something that I'll never forget. She said, Frank, where do you find people like the people who are running the cornerstone? And I said, Lorraine, there's thousands of them in Denver, but they're all being warehoused in churches. The church has built on an attraction model that tends to pull the people out so that we can grow it bigger. One of the most disastrous movements in the history of the church has been church growth. Jesus never even talked about the church. He mentions it two times, but he's relentless about the kingdom. And he even defines the kingdom. When I went to seminary, I read thick books translated from German about the kingdom. I got through, I didn't understand hardly anything. But then I remembered the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Wherever God's will breaks into human history, the kingdom is operative. It's not always operative in the church. The church and the kingdom are not the same thing. We are not primarily church members or or church associates or whatever they call things, call people who attend churches these days. But we're not primarily identified with the church. We're primarily kingdom agents. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Acts, you will see that during his resurrection ministry, well, let me just read it. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, this is Jesus, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He didn't say, let's go out and grow a bunch of big churches. That's not what he said. At the end of Acts, the 28th chapter, Paul's under house arrest. He says, for two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Folks, the Bible is relentlessly about the kingdom. And the kingdom is wherever God's will breaks into human history. And it's not going to happen very much if we depend on a handful of pastors whose primary kingdom ministry is inside these walls. It's got to happen through you. And sometimes it'll be connected to your job. It'll make sense to take that next step. Now, I can just warn you, you're probably going to step out of your comfort zone when you get called to your special calling. Fear and trembling, for God's going to work in, you've got to work it out. One, one Sunday, I came to the congregation and I said, look, our ministry in Arapahoe County Jail is going to end unless somebody wants to continue it because we never guilt trip people. Now, we had a distinction in our church. We didn't know what to call it, but we were emphasizing on the ministries outside, but the ministries inside were important too. So we started off by calling them in-house ministries and out-house ministries. And then <laughs> that didn't work very long, so we had to change it to home base and target group. And so we, had, we, had, we played the game differently. We never guilt trip people to get into target ministries. But I'll tell you what, if we needed nursery workers, we'd guilt trip you to go into the nursery. <laughs> so, so you can't, you know, you got to be able to think in, in a couple of different dimensions to make this work. And so I said to the church, I said, our ministry's going to end unless somebody wants to continue it. Next day I get a call from Carol. Carol's a school teacher. She sang in our choir, a single lady. She said, Frank, this is ridiculous. I couldn't sleep last night. God's telling me I'm supposed to do this. Do what? Do the Arapahoe County Jail Ministry. I said, really? Wow. He said, she said, what should I do? I said, well, God already told you. You know what you're supposed to do. She went and she took over that ministry. First night when she was on her own, she went to the women's side to teach a Bible study. She came into my office later and she said, Frank, my heart sank when I heard, that, when I heard him lock that cell door because she did the ministry in a cell and she was in there for an hour. Only one young lady waiting for her, her name was Becky. And she sat down and had Becky tell her about herself and she heard the story and I'm not going to go into all the nitty-gritty details, but just, just a, you know, a horrible story that you feel like you've got to go take a shower after you hear it. And she's thinking, she, and Carol told me, she said, I got angry. I got angry that any kid would have to go through all this kind of stuff. And then I got angry at God because 
The Bible study I had prepared didn't seem to make, didn't seem to connect very well. And then I was angry at you because you, you know, you were the one that kind of mentioned this. She said, I was just flat angry. Then something happened that had never happened to her in her Christian life before. This young girl's name was Becky, and the Holy Spirit said to Carol, teach her about her namesake. And she said, Becky, would you like to study about a woman by the name of Rebecca? And she knew her Bible well enough to follow the story. Would you like to be like Rebecca and, be, and follow God even though the cost is high and the risk is great? She said, I'd love to. So she introduced her to Christ. Becky went back into the cell block aflame for Jesus and most of the older women said, get out of here, it's jailhouse religion. But one young woman whose name was Juanita said, Becky, what happened to you? I got Jesus. How did that happen? A lady came, she had a Bible. What did the Bible say? Well, it has a story about my namesake, a woman by the name of Rebecca. And Juanita said, how about me? I don't know. I'll call Carol. So she calls Carol and says, are there any Juanitas in the Bible? (laughs) (laughs) We baptized both of those kids. We went before the judge. We got them out of jail early. We got them into shepherding homes we had in our church. And that little uh, school teacher found a whole new dimension of her Christian life and her special calling because God has worked in you. God's working in, you work out. Now, special calling is tough. I can't say if you don't have a special calling today, you should feel guilty or whatever. Special callings come and go. There's windows of opportunity. It's just a matter of listening, listening. Kathy, who, her husband and her, uh, Dempsey, attend here at Waterstone, she got together with a bunch of women and decided, and they decided what, they prayed about what target group, and they agreed on senior citizens. You know that our culture is just loaded with rest homes and seniors whose families have died and kids have died, and, they've, and, and, and they're in rest homes, and they're isolated. And a lot of people ask me, are you going to finish your life down in Guatemala? And I said, absolutely. There's no rest homes there. So I'm gonna, they, uh, they went down to, the, the, to get into the restroom, restroom, the rest homes, and uh, and. Kathy walked into this rest home and she said to the activities director, she said, can we come visit uh, different elderly folks here every Thursday afternoon? She said, well, activities director, we would love to have you. And so Kathy went down to Ione's room. Ione was 89 years of age. She said, Ione, my name's Kathy. I want to be your friend. I'm going to come every Thursday afternoon. Would that be all right? Sure. So she visits a few Thursdays and finds out Ione used to play in the piano bars in Minneapolis-St. Paul during World War I, and she knew all those old war tunes. And she said, hey, I've got a piano. Would you like to come out to my place on Thursday afternoon? So they began going out, and Ione began to bang on those ivories. And then Kathy said to her, Ione, you're a mess. We need to get you fixed up. So they did a color chart on her to find out whether she was a fall, winter, or spring. They began to spiff up her makeup, and they went shopping and got some, got some foxy clothes. And so pretty soon you got this hot-looking 90-year-old lady, and she's, and she's banging on these ivories, and she's looking good and feeling good. Got into a Bible study at 91. She'd never been in church in her life. Baptized her at 92, and she died at 93. And we had a celebration. That's the kingdom. And it happens out there. Ray was up in Seattle and I got invited to a church up in Seattle to do something that I called unleashing the church. To do a message on unleashing the church. And Ray got a passion from the Lord that made no sense 
with his abilities or, or his job. He was a computer geek working for the Gates operation up there in the Seattle area. But he had a passion to do home repair for single moms and get guys involved in it. And so this thing just grew like crazy and he got to... Uh, uh, local TV stations came out on Saturdays and they would put it on, on the news and Krispy, Kron Krispy Kreme Donuts would bring donuts out and give to the crews. And so I got invited to speak to a pastor's conference in Seattle. So I connected with Ray and I said, Ray, why don't you, why don't you come up and tell the pastors about your ministry because th that'll explain what I'm trying to talk about. And so he's telling them about this incredible ministry that they're doing, rehabbing and, and, and doing handiwork for, for single moms and all the impact it's making. And then he tells them, I can't even drive a nail straight. He said, I have no ability. I don't know why God put this kind of calling on my heart. And I was sitting next to his wife at the, front, at the table there in the luncheon. And she leans over and she said, Frank, he's not kidding. We got two toolboxes. Mine has tools, his has duct tape. <laughs> you see, the church was always intended to be some, about something bigger than itself. Church is vehicle. Kingdom is objective. And the kingdom happens when the masses are released into the culture to be kingdom agents. And yes, you love the Lord your God, you, you be a Christian in whatever you're doing, but there will be times in your life when something special will come along and it's probably going to move you out of your comfort zone and it might even cost you some of your salary. There, there might be a price to pay. And certainly it's a matter of timing. Doug, who was with uh, Campus Crusade, came and he said, Crusade is doing this wonderful ministry across the country doing creative outreach where they, they go after the up-and-outers in country clubs and, and what they do is they line up the kinds of speakers that people who attend country clubs would be, would be enough of a pull for them to come and hear and add cores from the Brewing family as Mary has become a Christian and his marriage has been uh, saved by by his conversion and, and Randy Gratishar with the Broncos. I've talked to both of them and they were willing to come and, and, uh, and do these creative outreach dinners. We've got Pinehurst Country Club lined up. It's all lined up. So I announced, hey, look, we're going to do, this is all available. But again, if you want to be there Friday night, 7 o'clock, nobody showed up. Now what you learn from that is timing. You see, my take on where we should go. and see. Now, we, we knew what we should do at the church. We knew we should work with youth and nursery and that kind of thing. We didn't have to, you know, reinvent the wheel there. The, cult, the culture demands that. But we had no idea what we should do in the city because there's so many possibilities out there. and It's so diverse. I can't imagine what we would have done with the Internet. <laughs> it, would have been, it, would, uh, it would have been pretty crazy. I mean, it was crazy enough without the Internet. And so... Uh, nobody shows up, and, and, uh, I'm, and so he comes back six months later, Doug does, and he says, God just won't leave me alone. Can we float that idea again? This time, uh, five or six couples show up. They did a half a dozen dinners. All kinds of people making commitments to Christ. All kinds of people making recommitments to Christ. I, ran, I bumped into uh, Randy Gratishar a couple of years ago. And he was just a warm and a glow from those meetings that we had uh, at Pinehurst Country Club. Susan, 
was a, raised in Nebraska. And what happened to her is what happened to Becky and so many young women in our culture. Things got bad at home. She said, I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm going to the city. And so she stuck out her thumb and hitchhiked into Denver. She went up, ended up on East Colfax. We had a coffee house, the open door coffee house on East Colfax. She came in, had coffee, enjoyed the music, met Christians, didn't buy in. Then she got involved in drugs, got busted, ended up in our cornerstone for delinquent girls. By the way, the state paid us $1,250 per girl per month. We had so much, and I would spend it all there. We, went, we, bought, we bought vans, we went to Disneyland. I mean, we just had a blast with that money. <laughs> Not one other church in the city tapped into it. Not one other church. You see, the secret of special calling is to listen to what's going on in the culture and then listen on the other side to God's want-tos. And when you put those two together, think about the first 300 years of the church. No buildings, no seminaries, no publishing houses. But a handful of kingdom agents who grew and grew and grew until 315, the Roman emperor Constantine said, if you can't beat them, join them, and converted. It's an amazing story. And sometimes all of our resources do more harm than good. We stayed in a building that seated 200 people. I never wanted people to become mostly preoccupied with what we were doing that was connected to the building. Because if you packed every church building in Denver ten times a week, you couldn't begin to touch and minister to the number of people that are in this city. Somehow we've got to recapture what was going on in those first 300 years. And so, Susan ended up in the Cornerstone, and she didn't buy in. She came to church, because some of the Cornerstone, they didn't have to attend church, but, and, and she liked the people, but she went back on the street after she, got a, after she emancipated at age 18, and she got pregnant. And she went back to the only people that she'd ever met in Denver that really cared about her, and found out that we had shepherding homes. You see, we always had in our church 10, 12, 15 families where spare bedrooms were dedicated to emergency situations, emergency pregnancies, maybe somebody coming out of a transition from jail. I mean, how do we use spare bedrooms? Aunt Tilly stopped by once a year. Now, you never want to guilt trip people for having a spare bedroom. That's not the idea. But some people, Some people, if you listen, God's going to show you how to use that. And it's tough having somebody come into your house. I mean, I'm I'm not, this is not all fun and games. 
There's suffering that goes along with it. There's, there's sacrifice that goes along with it. But if it's your calling, it doesn't matter because that's the most important thing that, you know, and, and Jesus even goes to the place, you know, he's talking about the kingdom and he says, you've got to deny your family, you've got to deny this. Gotta, in other words, the kingdom is what it's all about. Now, I don't know how to translate that into modern life, but I do know that whatever God is working in, you don't want to miss out. You want to work it out. Because there's nothing else like it in life. I'm 75, never dreamt that I would end up in the highlands of Guatemala. I retired when I was age 65, and somebody told me if you lay a, a second language track, you can delay dementia. Uh, about five years. And I was convinced I was already in early dementia, so it was time to get down there and learn Spanish. So in 2005, I went down to Guatemala to study Spanish, and the rest is history. I now live down there. So I want to show you my own journey. From 1961 to 1968, I became a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home in the army. And I was relentless about evangelism for the first seven years. And I asked the guy who was with the navigators who was discipling me, I said, look, I, I just want to tell people what happened to me, and I don't know anything about the Bible. And he says, well, Jesus healed this blind guy, and they quizzed him, who was it, and who did it, and said, I don't know. I, I can, all I can tell you is I was blind, now I see. So that's what, that was my witnessing. I, I, that's all I can tell you. From 1971 to 1990, see, there's a three-year gap in there. Here's the point. Special callings come and go. Sometimes there's two special callings at the same time. Sometimes they're connected to your job, something you know, something they're not Totally unconnected. In other words, this is God's plan. And it's unique to you. You are the only version of you. Don't miss the special callings in life. And most people think of a calling as a lifetime thing. Most special callings are not lifetime. Bob and Jan are not doing the medical clinic anymore. They're retired. And, and John's not doing the oil. You know, that doesn't necessarily go on for a lifetime. Most often it's a window of opportunity. That's why it's so important to be in tune. And then I had a 20-year gap. Never really expected to be passionate about other than my general calling, which is really a lot. <laughs> to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But I met a man who had the ministry in Guatemala where I was living, and we have the third highest malnutrition in the world. The poverty is grinding. Houses burned down in my city. I'm in the second largest city. Houses burned down because the fire department doesn't have gasoline to get the trucks there. And he was driving back to the States, and I asked if I could hitch a ride. So we're in somewhere in the middle of Mexico. And he, he was running a restaurant to raise money for a feeding program. And he said, Frank, I just can't make enough money in the restaurant, but I've got an idea. He 
said, I want to open a dress store. He said, I want to get like prom dresses and, and uh, event dresses up here and ship them down there. And, and I thought, that's brilliant because it's a very poor culture, but the fiesta is the fiesta and it has priority. So I said, I'd love to help. And oh, God just grabbed my heart. I don't know why. But I said, man, I'd love to help you with that. So I sent an email to the contacts that I still had in Denver, Frank Tillipi at AOL, subject line, coming out of the closet. <laughs> I wanted them to open. <laughs> I got a ton of dresses, and we opened the store. That was four years ago. And this is the way special calling often happens. What more can be done? Because I'm creating, it's jobs for Guatemala is what it's called. And I don't need to take any money out of it because my social security is four to five times the average income down there. And so uh, what more could we do? Well, the, the worst poverty is in the rural areas. And so I began to think, well, maybe some of these beautiful, beautiful handmade things that the Mayans make, but they, they can't market them. They don't, they have, and besides that, the only place that they pretty much have to sell them are to the stores which squeeze them. And so... I went to the store, found out what you would pay for these products, and then I went to the lady who makes them, and I said, would you bring them to my house? Bring me 100 Mayan, handmade Mayan scarves, and here's what I'm going to pay you. And I gave her a retail price, and she was shocked. You see, most of the ladies who make these things, they live in Mayan villages. There's 22 Mayan languages in Guatemala, and most of the women there don't speak Spanish. So she speaks Spanish, so she grabs it all, and she lugs it into the city an hour and a half on a chicken bus, and uh, she sells it on the street. It'll take her three months to sell a hundred of them at retail price. I paid her retail price uh, for a hundred in one snap. And when I paid her, she counted it because she was a little skeptical. As a matter of fact, just she told me that a couple of months before, somebody had told her to bring as much as she could bring to a certain address, and they would have a taxi waiting for her at the bus station. And so when she gets in, she gets into the taxi, they drive up to the address, she gets out, and the taxi drives off with all her stuff. And so there's 30 women in the village that are depending on that to feed their children. So she counted the money, and tears just flooded down her cheeks. See, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is connecting people. The kingdom is... is uh, the will of God breaking into human history. And so we added a second dimension besides the dress store we've gone into now, shipping down dresses, bringing back Mayan uh, scarves and other Mayan things to help them find a market for what they, for what they do. Jim Walters, who's the pastor of Bear Valley, good friend, said, Frank, you need to come under a 501c3, so he put me under an umbrella thing called Servants of Christ. And he said to me, if I find $10,000 for you, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. I haven't been thinking about $10,000. He said, well, think about it. And so I emailed him that night, and I said, Jim, this is a no-brainer. Where I live, the streets are, all over the streets are these little shoeshine boys. They may be 15 years old, but they're this tall because they've been stunted as they're growing. And we live in 7,500 feet, and we get into the high 20s, low 30s at night during the winter. 
And these kids sleep outside in cardboard. They're throwaway kids. They have no families. And I thought to myself, what if we could get a hold of a youth group? Because out of our, out of our store, we fund an interdenominational youth group. We give gas to the, ga- to, the, to the fire department. We get money for gas to the fire department so they can have gas for their trucks. But we also give money to an interdenominational youth group that goes into the uh, rural areas and does vacation Bible schools and takes food and toothpaste and stuff to the kids, but they also work with shoeshine boys in the city. So I said, thought, you know what, if we could intercept these kids when they're just starting, five or six years old, because they become hardened real fast, and, and to survive on the streets, you, you just have to have something, you know, if you don't have, if you don't understand uh, life from a Christian view, uh, it's so bleak that they start sniffing glue and th- their mind goes fast. And so they, they lay at night and sniff glue. And, and I thought, what if we could get them before they destroy their mind? Five or six years old, get them into a, a, as a pensionista in a house and then uh, get them into a school. And did the numbers, about $250 per kid per month. So I told Jim, I said, okay, Jim, uh, I got to figure it out what we're going to do. We just need the 10,000. So we'll see <laughs> what's going to happen there. But that's the way special calling works. It does marvelous things. But you got to initiate it. You got to initiate it. You see, God's working in, you work out. What could that be? I'm going to close now and ask Danielle and Aubrey to come because through this special calling with the scarves, my friends in the highlands of Guatemala have connected with some very beautiful people here in Denver, and they're going to tell you the story. Frank asked me to share um, a little piece from an article that he found that talks about some of the poverty in Guatemala. Under decades of colonization, dictators, ethnic and racial strife, civil war, and government corruption, all punctuated by natural disasters. The lush, gorgeous land of Guatemala has become a death trap for the poorest of its citizens. According to a November report from the United Nations Human Rights Council, about 40% of Guatemala's indigenous population lives in extreme poverty. Half of all Guatemalan children under age five suffer from chronic malnutrition and the rate increases among those living in the mountains and rural villages to over 70%. According to UNICEF, Guatemala's rate of malnutrition is the worst in the Western Hemisphere. It is commonly ranked as the third worst in the world for child malnutrition. This is my daughter, Aubrey. She's a sixth grader at Red Rocks Elementary School and a participant at the bridge here. And through a relationship that Frank and I developed over the last few years, um, we learned about the opportunity to help the women in Guatemala by purchasing scarves. Um, So I wanted to ask Aubrey some questions so you can get to know a little bit about her heart. You talk about passion. Um, I've lived with her for 12 years, and it's cool to see um, how God has begun to develop a passion in her at a very early age. So I want to give you a chance to hear from her a little bit. So first question for you, you've got this passion for helping people. Where did that come from? I've been serving since I was really little around the church and around our community, and I saw helping people in Guatemala as another chance to do it. 
So you have this, this um, DC fundraiser. So she's going on a trip to Washington DC with her school and she had to raise um, $1,800. Oh, she said 2,500. Mom doesn't know. <laughs> Aubrey knows. Um, she had to raise $2,050 and so she had the chance to partner with um, Frank to sell some of these scarves. So I know you set a goal early on. What was your goal? 800 meals. 800 meals. And every scarf or item that you buy sell, um, provides 10 meals to a family. So 800 meals meant she needed to sell about 80 scarves or backpacks. So you got involved in this, and what was it like? At first, it's, it sounds like it started out like one thing, and then you got a passion, and it turned into something else. At first, I liked to raise money for my own D.C. trip, but then as I got it farther into it, I realized I had a bigger passion for helping the other people in Guatemala. And so I think you surpassed your goal. So your goal was 800. What did, how much did you actually raise? 860. And how did you feel about that? I was really excited that I could help so many people. Awesome. Thank you. What fuels these special callings in uh, the church is Jesus' passion for us. The way that He loves us. The way that He wants to forgive our sins. He wants to promise us eternal life. He wants us to be on mission. A, a life of significance. So what fuels this special calling of the church is Jesus' sacrifice and love for us. So we thought it would be fitting today to end our time and worship with uh, communion and inviting the church to be refueled to come again to the table of the Lord and again understand what Jesus has done for us, how much He loves us. So, as we invite the servers to come to their stations at this time, hear Jesus' words as He fuels the church. This is from Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take it. This is My body. And then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Jesus said, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. And when they had finished, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. We now invite all of you who know and love Jesus, who want to receive again all that He's done for us, to come. Leave your seats. Come and uh, take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup and understand again how much Jesus loves you. As we fellowship together, we'll also sing. Come when you're ready. <laughs> 